Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. I'm not making this up. Welcome to Filmstrip and our review of the Bourne films. The Bourne Identity, The Bourne Supremacy, The Bourne Ultimative, and 2012's The Bourne Legacy. With all of them at the same time? You heard me. Our agents for the series are Nick. I'm going to ask you some simple questions. You're going to answer me honestly. Or I swear to God, I'm going to kill you. And Jay. Oh, come on, folks. We caught a break here. Let's go. Please note that these files require a high level of listener clearance and you will be privy to plot summaries and detailed discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of The Bourne Ultimatum, starring Matt Damon, Julia Stiles, David Strathairn, Scott Glenn, Edgar Ramirez, Albert Finney, and Joan Allen. Directed by Paul Greengrass, released in 2007 on a budget of $115 million, made over $442 million worldwide. The third chapter, the biggest grossing one in the series so far, and Nick, I'd say the darkest one, too. Yeah, this one's pretty dark, pretty violent, pretty intense. I mean, the first, you know, the first one was, you know, like I always said, like kind of like a standard Hollywood spy movie. The second one got a little bit more of the documentary, but it was really never, I guess, you know, it was dark, but this one just took it to the next level where it was a lot of killing and a lot of non-emotion from our main character. This is incredibly intense, and I think they ended on a very intense moment the last time with that pullback to realize he was watching Landy from afar, and then they kick into that, that kicking Moby track, and I felt like right off the gate in this one, they they pick it right up. And I mean, that's part of the, the crux of this movie is at least a third of it is overlapping the end of the last film's events. Or it's the pieces that are in between when he leaves Moscow before that six weeks before that call. And I thought that was a genius way to sort of interlock those two stories together. And I'm kind of, I want to flip through like fan edit now and see if anybody's tried to mesh them together and make one big epic born film. I'm sure someone has, uh, or if they haven't, maybe they will now. <laughs> I'd like to see that. But I do feel like these, I mean, the first one almost stands alone by itself. If you just had a couple of flashbacks, you could probably pick up, and if you had the second and the third one together, they're very, very closely tied together. And part of that is Paul Greengrass. I mean, it's the same director. It, it looks exactly the same, except it it's shot with a different lens. Like, there's a blue tint on this whole movie, you know, to me. And I, I don't know if that's on purpose or what, but it, you know, I, I can only think that it is. Because it changes the aesthetic. It's no longer angry because my girlfriend is dead, though that's still what's driving Born here. It's we're coming to some 
you feel like this is the third chapter. We're coming to a resolution here. You know, they said going into it, this was going to be the third one. It's going to be it. And I mean, they went for broke on it, man. And I, I have to say, I mean, it cashed in in a way that the other two films hadn't done. Oh, definitely. Um, also, I think what's kind of interesting about this movie is they actually started filming this movie without a complete script. That a lot of the stuff, a lot of like even like the later stuff in the movie wasn't done, and the script wasn't done until they were ready to shoot. And when you hear about that, you know, like oh, they started filming without the script, you start thinking like, okay, Alien Three or oh, yeah. you know, a movie that's really not that good. Sorry, Jansen, but it's not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing when you think about it that it's that they actually started filming this movie without a script and. It's amazing well, and, when you watch this whole movie and you think you're like, wow, you know, you, you think this whole movie from how it begins to how it ends, that this was all laid out back when they did the supremacy. But it, it's funny when you think about that, it wasn't done like no, that no, but at it's all. The same, it's the same writer and that, that makes a difference. So you've got the same team involved, but I'm with you. I would have never thought this film would have been something that, that went without a script because it just seems so well pieced together and so smart. And this one returns to something that the last one did. The last one jumped all over the place. This one seems to be uh, allowing it to linger a little bit more. You know, there's moments where this kind of stops and pumps the brakes a little bit. And I liked that. And I think part of that is because a, a good bit of this takes place in New York on American soil. And that's a new thing for this series, too, because mostly the New York stuff has just been flashing back to Langley. But the, most of it has been overseas, and now we're going to be on American soil for a chunk of this movie. And I, that's a different aesthetic to add to the whole mix. Yeah, definitely. And I really kind of like it that he's, you know, it's, the movie's kind of coming full circle if I'm coming back to the United States. And even like the when I first saw this movie for the first time, I remember seeing this in the movie theater, and I was completely confused because I just got done seeing The Bourne Supremacy, and all of a sudden he's in Russia, and he's getting shot at by these, you know, I don't know what the uh, Russian police are called. And I'm just like, this doesn't make any sense. The last time we saw him, he was in the United States talking to Pamela Landry and stuff. And now he's in Russia again. And it wasn't until we see that scene at the end of the supremacy, kind of, you know, about two thirds of the way through it, that I was like, oh, aren't you clever? <laughs> it's a smart way to do it. I mean, it's a neat thing because everybody in the audience immediately goes, oh, now I get it, you know, because it brings you into the timeline. That's one thing each of these films has succeeded in, I think, is the way it throws us into the beginning of it is you just feel like you just got to start running just to keep pace. And eventually you stop trying to figure out where you are and you just go with the film. And then by the time it reveals itself to you as to where you are in the timeline, you're like, oh, it's it's a big relief and it's a, a, it's a good, satisfying reveal. I kind of feel like uh, Muldoon from uh, Jurassic Park. It's like, ah, clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, well, before we get too much deeper into our discussion about it, let's say we go with a plot summary. This was a little long, so let's see if we can get through this. Jason Bourne eludes Moscow police and goes into hiding after being shot by FSB agent Kirill. And he is haunted by a resurfacing memory of walking down a hallway with two men who are talking about a program. Six weeks later, the Guardian security correspondent, Simon Ross, meets with a source to discuss Bourne and the operation known as Treadstone, trying to get the story in the international papers. When Ross mentions Operation Blackbriar on a phone call to his editor, the CIA tracks him. 
Meanwhile, Bourne travels to Paris to inform Marie's brother Martin of her death and assures him that he is hunting her killers. Bourne learns of Ross's investigation of Treadstone and they secretly meet at the Waterloo station. Bourne helps him evade capture in an awesome walking chase scene. When Ross de- deviates from Bourne's instructions, he's killed by a Blackbriar assassin known as Paz on the orders from Blackbriar's director, Noah Voshin, who's played by David Strathairn. Meanwhile, CIA director Ezra Kramer sends Landy to help Voshin after he spots Bourne in a camera feed at the Waterloo station. Searching Ross's notes, they deduced that his source was Neil Daniels, a CIA station chief in Madrid, Spain, who formerly was involved with Treadstone and was actively involved in Blackbriar. Bourne follows Ross's notes to Daniels in Madrid uh, as well, but he finds it empty. Nicky Parsons arrives shortly after, and Bourne incapacitates the CIA field team sent by Bosun and Landy to capture him. She helps Bourne escape another incoming CIA squad and tells him that Daniels fled to Morocco. Upon arriving in Tangier, Morocco, Parsons hacks into the CIA database to locate Daniels but fails, finding that, Blackbriar, finding that a Blackbriar asset named Dash has been tasked with killing him. Vosin learns of Parsons' login attempt and orders Dash to kill her and Bourne as well, a decision that Landy disagrees with. Afterwards, Vosin calls Kramer and confirms their intentions to use Landy as a scapegoat if things go wrong. Bourne follows Dash to Daniels, but fails to prevent Daniels' death by a roadside bomb. He does, however, kill Dash after strangling him to death uh, following an intense hand-to-hand fight, and later he sends uh, Nicky Parsons into hiding. Upon examining the contents of Daniels' charred briefcase, Bourne finds the address of the deep-cover CIA bureau in New York City where Voshin directs Blackbriar. Bourne then travels to New York City and gives Landy that famous phone call that we know from the end of the Bourne Supremacy, and we find out that her phone was tapped by Voshin. Landy thanks Bourne for the tape and gives him some basic information about his name and his birth date, and while speaking, Bourne notices Voshin storing highly classified materials in a safe in his office. As Bourne hangs up and tells Landy to get some rest, she and Voshin both understand that mean he's currently watching her. Voshin intercepts a text message that Bourne sent to Landy arranging a meeting at a location and leaves his office with a team to follow her. The meeting is revealed to be a diversion, though, that allows Bourne to break into Voshin's office and steal the classified Blackbriar documents. Voshin sends Paz after him, resulting in a car chase, again, which ends with Paz forcing Bourne into a stolen police car and into a concrete divider. Bourne gets out, though, and holds Paz at gunpoint before sparing his life and continuing on to meet with Landy. Voshin also figures out Landy's code and warns Dr. Hirsch, who ran Treadstone's behavior modification program, that Bourne is en route to meet with him. Landy meets Bourne outside the building, and she admits to her change of heart and that she's helping him because she hadn't signed up for programs like Treadstone and Blackbriar. Bourne gives her the Blackbriar files before going inside, and Landy faxes them to a secondary witness, with Voshin arriving just as the last page is successfully sent. Bourne meets with Hirsch in an upper-level room, and with Hirsch's counseling and prompting, finally recalls that he was not forced into the program, but in fact volunteered. He proclaims that he no longer wants to be Jason Bourne and flees Voshin and flees from Voshin's pursuing team on the roof. There, Paz confronts Bourne with why he didn't kill him when he had the chance, and Bourne questions him as to his motives, repeating the dying words of the professor from the Bourne identity, saying, Look at us. Look at what they make you give. Paz lowers his gun as Bourne runs to jump off the roof, but Voshin appears and shoots Bourne, and apparently shoots Bourne as he leaps into the East River. 
Sometime later, Landy is shown testifying before the Senate committee regarding Blackbriar. Parsons watches a television news broadcast about the exposure of the operation, the arrests of Hirsch and Voshin, and a criminal investigation against Kramer for authorizing the operation, and that David Webb, also known as Jason Bourne, was reportedly shot and fell into the East River, but his body has never been found. Parsons smiles, and Bourne is shown swimming away underwater after his fall, and that is the end of the Bourne ultimatum and really the Jason Bourne trilogy if you will because we know the next film won't feature him so what are your thoughts here on this Nick I mean we already said we like the way that they picked us up and that two-thirds of this story overlaps with the last one but Jason finally gets his answers or does he really I mean what does he really find out about his life though I mean he kind of finds out that he was you know, in the service before, and that he signed up for this. He signed up to be the killer. He, he knew he, he was finds gonna... out that he chose this, and I think that's big because I think he's operated under the assumption that he was plucked out of some other job and then brainwashed by these people. And what in reality happens is he indeed was recruited, but he had to ultimately decide to kill that person he didn't know in the corner. That's the whole test that he goes through, right? And it, he comes to the grips that he decided to be this and that you know it's not worth it yeah definitely i i also kind of like it too that he doesn't really find out much more than that i mean he doesn't find out anything more about his old, old life besides his name it's not like his memories also like come rushing back to him he still doesn't know who he is i mean he's still got that pretty big blockage in his head of what his former life was and i kind of like it that it wasn't all tied up with a nice pretty bow i like it that the movie really went full circle I mean, the first the first scene that we see in the Born Identity is the last scene we see in this movie, and that's Born in the Water. Exactly. It, it, I almost thought, are they ending this back where it started? But there's no way that could have worked. But I like that too. There is some symmetry to it, and that was a nice touch. Yeah, definitely. I think if uh, Damon Lindelof would have wrote it, he would have fell through a time portal, <laughs> and then he would have ended up falling back in the ocean right there. And he and, he and Nikki would have had sex with some black goo and had some squid children. But that's another <laughs> the other day for another podcast. But don't, let's not bring Lindelof into this, man. This movie's, it's he's, the new, own... he's, he's my new George Lucas, man. I'm, I'm telling you, man. You, yeah, this is like three in a row. <laughs> but... It's going to be well, like I mean, 20 you, in a row. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of the over, overlapping timeline bit? You know, I've seen this. This is happening in other films, too. I mean, there's uh, – what? what is it? Um, the, oh, it's one of the Saw movies. I'm actually a big fan of the Saw series, and there's a couple of those that, like, are happening simultaneously, but you don't realize that until later and all that stuff. I. Uh, what do you think of that whole gimmick, basically? Oh, when it's done right, I like it. I mean, like I said in the beginning of this cast, is that I really had no idea what was going on in the beginning. I'm like, you know – they screwed this movie up. I'm sitting there thinking I'm smarter than this movie in the beginning going, man, you guys screwed this up. This timeline screwed up. And then it's like, man, I really feel stupid. And I like that when it's like, you really don't realize what's going on until the movie lets you in on it. Where a lot of other movies where I think it's happening, a lot of times it's telegraphed. I mean, I think I know what you're talking about with Saw 3 and Saw 4, how those all are kind of taking place at the same time. And I figured, I saw Saw movies and I figured that out when it was going on. It's like, well, if he died in the third one and he's alive right now, well, obviously this is taking place during the same time. But I, I like it when it's done right, and this movie does it very well. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think it's it's very smart. And I know that's a term that gets thrown around about a lot of scripts and stuff, but I, I think this series as a whole is very smart. But this film in particular is incredibly intelligent, and it's put together 
by people that expect you to pay attention and get that. And I like that. You know, sometimes I like the popcorn shut off my brain Transformers 3 kind of movie. I, I won't lie. I, I enjoy that type of thing. But sometimes I really want to be challenged and be made to think. And I like it when films ask me to do that and then reward me for that effort at the end of it. Yeah, and even with these movies, though, I mean, a lot of times I've seen movies that are are smart movies, and it's almost like they enjoy being smart movies where it's like they're going to throw it in your face how smart they are. It doesn't feel like that with this movie. It just feels like it's a really well-made film and that whoever wrote the script, you know, whether, you know, like I said, this movie was written when it was being filmed, but it feels like this movie was planned out and scripted by, you know, two people in a room for, you know, a couple months. You know, they just hammered it all home. It's not like it's a big botch job where you had like six or seven hands on the cookie pot. And it doesn't feel like it was rushed. It just feels like it's just a well-made movie. Well, it, and Tony Gilroy is the same screenwriter on it. He's been on the last two as well, but he's got two new compatriots this time. Scott Burns and George Nofi wrote the screenplay with him, but he wrote the story. And I, I get the feeling that he cracked out the story. They started pre-production and getting it into production while the screenplay got finished. But having the same hand in it who's been involved in all of them is the key there. That's a way to maintain continuity if the same creative team is involved. And that's, I mean, that's really how Saw did it. They sort of worked down through their production designers, basically, as who was running that thing by the end of it. But that's how they were able to keep that really tight, overlapping, interlocking continuity. And sure, they, you know, retcon and fudge here and there. But in this one in particular, it, it's just a tight script because it's written by the same people. Well, what's George Lucas's excuse? <laughs> ah, yeah, well, you know, he, nobody told him no. Gary Kurtz doesn't work there anymore. That's George Lucas' excuse. But let's get right into this thing here, man. I mean, we do start up at with really the end of the last film. He's running away from the Moscow police after that car crash and stuff. So this is the night before the morning he met uh, the orphan girl. And so this is what he did in the in-between. And in the six weeks of the fallout of all of that, you it's almost like WikiLeaks happening here. Is that That's kind of how I read Simon Ross, is this guy that was doing this investigative reporting and was going to blow the whistle on this whole thing. I mean, how did you buy that? I liked it, too. I, I, I really liked how he was, you know, he's talking about this Black Briar, and you can't, you, you remember hearing that in Born Identity. I mean, that was just a name they threw it at the end, and they bring it into this movie, so... I really like that. I mean, who even knows what they, that's what they meant when they said Black Briar and Born Identity. But I like the technology in here, too, how they just say that word, and it's like it's a key word. Yeah, and also it, it it's flags like, oh, you immediately, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hear about that all the time right now with, you know, Google and stuff and, you know, what the government knows and how they're monitoring you and stuff. I mean, you always heard about that your whole life, that if you check out certain library books, you'll be put on a list. And that's a well-known fact. That's actually true. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that happens, yeah. And then it's almost like the same thing with like Google. I mean, you, you search something like how to make a pipe bomb and you're probably going to be blacklisted on an FBI list. And it's not that far fetched to believe that, you know, they have certain people, maybe everybody, you know, wiretapped and they're just looking for certain words, you know, whether, you know, it's black briar or treadstone or whatever. And as soon as that's heard, boom, it starts recording your thing and your, your information sent to someone and they're looking at you. And I, I thought it was very cool. You know, very, very high tech, but very cool and very realistic. I did, too. I, I dug it. I thought that was very, very neat. And that 
this all starts uh, getting unraveled because Bourne finds out about it by hearing things on the news while he's in Paris telling Marie's brother about her death. And how did you like that bit that he would track down that family member and tell him about this? Now, is this the same guy from the countryside? Is this the same brother or stepbrother or whatever? I don't think it is. It's a different actor and it's a different name. Okay, I, I wasn't. I couldn't remember it. I, I'm glad you said that. I didn't realize. I guess maybe this is just one he would have learned about in their time together or whatever. Well, I figured they they were together for two years between Identity and Supremacy, so he probably did meet him. And when I first saw it, I did think it was the guy from the first one, but then I went back and did a little bit of research on it, and she does say I think that's her former boyfriend in the first one. That wasn't her brother. Oh, okay, okay. That was her former, you know, boyfriend or friend. I don't know a long time ago, and that was, you know. I always thought it was her brother, too, when I first saw it. I'm like, oh, they must have just recasted the guy or whatever, you know, and that, you know. And I think that's almost maybe what they were trying to get at. I think if they would probably go back and, re, you know, if they could go back and re-edit it or retcon it or pull a George Lucas and do a special edition, they probably would make that guy her brother <laughs> and kind of make it all. Like, like I said, even like in the Born Supremacy cast is that they would make the, um, the one guy, you know, that one last assassin be the guy who killed Conklin. I think it's all just a little bit of like... That's who he's supposed to represent, I think, that maybe they are supposed to be the same guy, but brother's a little bit more impactful because, you know, oh, yeah, your ex-girlfriend's dead who was seeing, you know sleeping with me for a while. He'd probably be like, okay, well, she was dead to me anyways. Or, or where it's a brother, it's a little bit more meaningful. And they, you, they, the guys look really much alike. I mean, they got that Eastern European look. They got the, you know, the shaggy, curly brown hair and stuff, scruffy face and everything. So I think that... Like I said, I think it's almost like a little bit of a retcon in a way that you're supposed to take it as that was the guy from the first one, even if it's not. Yeah, I, I got the feeling, though, the whole point was to let us know that he's still after the people that killed her. That's the, still the thing that's driving him, or at least that's what he's saying, you know, to keep himself going or whatever. And then we get what well, uh, did I just... You, I'm, I'm sorry, but did you also like the way, too, that he's kind of shown that he's a lot like his sister, where he's like... He's not saying, like, yeah, go kill him. He's kind of like, then what? You know, you're exactly. going to go kill these guys, and, and then what? You know, she's dead. You know, you doing this isn't going to bring her back. And I like that, too. It's like another, like, you know, moral compass coming into his life, even if it's for a couple seconds, saying, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to go on this big crusade and kill everybody who's wronged you and everybody who's looked at you the wrong way. And in the end, you're still going to be alone. And what's the point? You know, why are you going to do this? You know, you're just going to ruin more people's lives, you know? That's the yeah. way I took it. That's the way I took it. It's like, yeah, you know what? You're going to go kill this guy who's a bad guy, but that guy probably has a family, has kids and stuff. So now you're going to ruin their lives. And then, you know, when is this going to stop? Well, here's, here's what I took it as. And I think that's right. Is Where does this end for you? And I think that's when he realizes it's got to end with me figuring out how I got into this to begin with. And I think that's when Jason Bourne's programming kicks in to go, it's time to go home. It's time to go back to the States, get to the bottom of this once and for all and then be done with it, one way or the other. And maybe I'll never get my memory back. Maybe I'll never know who I really am. But I'm going to figure out how I got here. And if I know that, then at least I can make peace with that. I mean, that's sort of how I took the whole bit. And I think you've called it out direct, correctly. He's got similar character traits to Marie, and Bourne needs someone like that to recenter him in his life. Because at this point, he's just on a vengeance trip. But then after that, this becomes much more of a mission. And it has more of a purpose, I think, than just killing her killers. Because he's already done that. 
Well, I think with him, it's like Bourne's almost like a junkyard dog without a chain right now. He's just, he's going, you know. It's a good time to talk about the new CIA people that are introduced into the story here. First off, Noah Voshin, the David Strathairn's character, the another CIA deputy director in charge of the new Treadstone called Blackbriar. And he's really, I don't know, he's set to be the antagonist. He's much more like Chris Cooper's character, Conklin, was, but he's a little cooler customer. Like, David Strathair, to me, is it always plays a wide variety of roles. Very cool. But he just always comes off as this real suave, very cool, almost like 1930s gangster. You know, he's got a little bit of that in him. And I, he's, I, I love almost everything he's in and his performances, and I really dug him here. Yeah, he's just, he's really kind of a cool, calm, collected guy. And I actually, a part of the scene I really liked with him in the beginning was when he's having breakfast with Pamela and he orders like the egg, the uh, heart healthy omelet. And <laughs> it's just like, it's just, it's just real interesting. I don't know. It's just, it just shows that he's real calculated and he's really like, you know, he's careful what he puts in his body and stuff like that. And that he's going to be just like that with every little aspect of his life. He wants complete control of everything that he's doing. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Total control freak. Like a big time. I mean, if you think Landy is real organized and stuff, this guy is even beyond that. I mean, he's almost robotic in a way. Well, you start, I, you start seeing what reason why Pamela is the really eccentric type A personality she is, is because she has to deal with guys like this. And you see this guy and it's like, oh man, you were just you were scum, man. You can just tell just by the way but, he is. He's just but like... But he's ruthless. That's the thing. He's just... He's a cutthroat, ruthless. He's got that Gordon Gecko thing going on. You know, it's all that stuff. I mean, he can play so many different... He can do this character and put it in a lot of different kind of dramatic roles. He just happens to be playing a CIA deputy director here. But I totally got that... I mean, from the minute he comes on the screen, you're like, well, obviously this guy's knee-deep in this, too. <laughs> And so it's, how is this going to unfold into his role? Because you knew he was bad from the beginning. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I always got that his character, he he enjoys the dirty part of his job, where, you know, Pamela is trying to keep it clean, trying to keep it 100% and everything, and trying to do everything by the book, where he's like, he'll do whatever it takes to get the job done, but he also enjoys it. Yeah. Just like Chris Cooper, who I think maybe didn't enjoy it, maybe had it one time, but had gotten sick of it by the by the end of his life. I think this guy still digs it. I'm with you. He he's much more like Brian Cox in that way, is that he's still got the stomach for it, you know. And and I like and we'll go ahead and flash to it now. I like how he's not killed in the end. He's basically going to jail. I mean, that, you know, it's usually that's the big shootout, right? Is everybody gets killed in the end? It, that's not what happens at all in this i mean it none of the really principal on that born only kills a couple of people you know in this and well i'd more than a couple he incapacitates a lot of folks but he really doesn't kill the head i mean he doesn't go and shoot the cia director you know and uh, who's behind all of it we find out yeah because well you I mean I, I that's why i give this movie a lot of credit because that would be below jason Bourne's character because he realized you know if he kills a cia director or something well now he's on the fbi's you know top 10 list you know if he does something like that he's gonna go in and basically have the guy screw up and then take that guy's screw up and give it to the the proper people and that guy's gonna go away he did the same thing yeah. with abbott in the last one he wasn't gonna kill him but he got him to basically make a big mistake and it's like here you made a mistake i caught that mistake and guess what now you're done 
Exactly. He's gonna he's gonna feed that information through, and that's why I like the whole role of this international press guy in this whole bit, and how they get involved in in this. Is the CIA is tracking this guy, and Bourne becomes aware of him too. And I I said it in the plot summary, the most awesome walking chase scene I think I have ever seen in a film. My only other point of reference for that is the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair that Pierce Brosnan was in several years later. At the end of that film, he's you know, he's got all these doubles walking around the art museum while he pulls off a heist or whatever. And that that's similar to this, but I even think this one is done better. It's it's Jason Bourne walking around talking to this guy on a cell phone and having him walk in different directions. It's fantastic. I mean, when I saw us in the movie theater, I mean, my pulse was quickening, and it's like, this is a they're freaking walking. I mean, this 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 is this is a chase scene, but if, I've never seen a chase scene where they've walked. I mean, where it's like they haven't gone faster than three miles an hour, mm-hmm. and I just I love how brutal Jason is. It's just like the guy he sees a guy he comes up to him and boom 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 he's dead, and he just walks away from him, and it's just it's fantastic and. You also you feel the tension too of the other guy as he's getting the directions from him. You know, stop, bend down, do this, do that, and it's like you're with him because you don't know what's going to happen to this guy, and you don't want to see him dead because he might have answers for Jason. And it's just, and I got to give Paul Greengrass tons of credit because the scene is just directed fantastically. I mean, I, I you, you sit there and you say, oh yeah, there was a chase scene that involves everybody walking around, and people probably be like, oh okay, yeah, that sounds cool. But it's like it's- once you get done watching it, you're like. That was freaking awesome. <laughs> it's one of the, it's actually on YouTube. You know, YouTube has these clips of films or whatever, like four and five minute, just little chunks of them. This one you can watch on there, folks. And I, I had watched this one. I've watched it a couple of times since seeing the film just to watch it again. And Nick's right. I mean, it's just a pulse pounding three minute scene. And it, it's amazing how much tension they were able to ramp up. In something that has, I mean, there's no guns, there's no fire, there's no Michael Bay explosions, there's no Aerosmith music. It's somebody walking through a train station <laughs> and it's and being chased and a couple of cell phone conversations. And I love how, you know, we talked about the first time the CIA was using all their tech to figure out what was going on. I love how the headquarters group with, with Boshin leading the crowd is figuring out somebody's talking to this guy, somebody's giving him help, and they see Bourne on the closed circuit TV after it's all said and done. Now, I, I love how they're able to figure it out, and we see them piecing it together. Now, what do you think about Ross getting killed only when he deviated from the instructions? He got shot by the sniper. Makes sense, man. You got to listen to Jason, dude. He knows what he's doing. I Seriously. Mean, yeah, it's. I, I liked it, too. That guy was up there, and he was just you know kind of watching through that. It was that like kind of a flipping billboard. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as he's out there, boom, just... Just like that. I mean, just just cold and calculated, just like Jason was during the scene. It was like he was he had his target, he was waiting, and it make I mean, it's it's cool. I mean, I I hated seeing, you know, a good guy get killed like that, but it was, you know, just just the capper to the scene and you figure and then what does Jason do? Jason's gonna go after the guy, you know? It's that well he goes and gets his material and then he starts reading through it and see what he's got, and what he realizes is that the the source is gonna lead him to Spain. You know, a CIA station chief who'd be basically the same kind of rank as like Conklin had, I guess, and maybe this Votion guy has, is involved in all of this stuff. And so he knows, well, if I know that, they're going to figure it out, too, and they're going to dispatch somebody to kill him. So he knows he's got to get there quick. And that starts the clock ticking, which I really like. I mean, it gets us to move things along. 
And that's, I mean, that it's at that point when he bumps back into or brings back Nikki Parsons into this whole thing. Now, what did you think of her popping back up? And what did you think of the little, I don't know, do they do a reveal here? Um, well, for her, I like that she comes back up because she's kind of like that familiar face, almost kind of like, uh, I guess, you know, I've read a little bit of spoilers for the new Batman movie, almost like the Scarecrow, how <laughs> it's like, yes, she's always going to have a cameo in the movie, and I, I like it, and the little reveal of did they or didn't they have a relationship, I mean, it's never really pressed more than what I just said, it's just, you know, Nikki's talking to Jason, and, you know, she kind of just says, yeah, you're a little bit harder to, you know, let go of than the other guys and that's all they say so it's kind of like you know did she have feelings for him or was it something a little bit more you don't know but you know it's it's just a nice little thing to kind of remind you that you know jason is a human he's just not the terminator and i also like it later in the movie when he's you no know, he's dying her hair just like he did for you know marie and it's again a lot of this movie just kind of brings it back full circle back to identity and i i yeah. like all these character moments can i tell you though i love how they they do the symmetry of that scene but it doesn't pay out the same way they don't wind up sleeping together, you know. Oh, I'm so glad. Happens, I'm you know? very glad that they didn't do that. I was kind of like expecting it because that would have been kind of like I think a lesser movie would have really had them do that, but it was just yep. kind of like he did that, but there's no chemistry behind the relationship. I mean, whatever she's saying happened, he doesn't remember it and stuff, and you can you can see that you know they don't have chemistry together. They don't have feelings for each other like he did for Marie. And because he's his mindset on a mission right now, and I think that also kind of goes back to who he is. That you know, when his mind's set on a goal, it doesn't matter what's going on; he's going to accomplish that goal. Whereas an identity, he really didn't have that type of goal going on, where he was able to open himself up more to a girl. Whatever she was is part of the void in his brain that he can't fill anymore, and he doesn't want to go back on that. That's not who he wants to try to recover. At this point, he's about two things. He's really about one thing. That is finding out how he got involved in this and exposing the people involved in Treadstone, Blackbriar, and getting them all basically thrown in jail. That's his whole point. And, and he, I think he's so focused on that that he's really just trying to keep her alive because, let's face it, it's advantageous for him to have an asset like her around. you know. And it is. I mean, she proves to be useful to him more than once in this. And I, I liked how they used her. I thought it was a... Good use of a character that we've just seen bits and pieces of in the last two films. They gave her a lot to do here, and I think she did good with it. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think she did a good job, and this is kind of interesting that after um I think the after the uh, scene where he got into a fight and all the rooftop chase, she doesn't even have a line after that movie. She's around, but she doesn't have one line left in the movie. And she's just in the background after that point. You know, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. So. But I like how she helps him escape from the CIA crew that he's basically, you know, shut down. And then she is talking in code devotion, and she basically tells him, you got to get out of here. My car's out front. Let's go. Because I know where this Daniels guy is. And she basically volunteers to be his driver. She's his Marie at that point. And I, I like that. And I like that we don't really spend any time on the getting there. But it's just that they would know how to get there. I mean, that shows her as someone who's more than just a technician. Well, how do you think? What do you think of the whole bit about the fact that he doesn't get there in time to save the source guy? That Dash gets there and kills him with that motorcycle bomb. Oh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I mean, it's just like I said. It's just something that wasn't expected. You always you're figuring that Jason's going to accomplish his mission, that he's going to get there and save the day, and he doesn't. I mean, the guy gets blown up pretty nat gets the pretty gets blown up in a pretty nasty explosion and. 
I liked it, and I, I love the fight that follows it, too. You know, with that rooftop chase where he gets into a fight with Dash in the, um, was it, like, some one of the uh, apartment buildings or whatever, and that fight is just brutal. Oh, yeah, that's the one where he, like, jumps out of the window, and they're doing almost, like, the parkour and stuff. I mean, it's a, that's one of the uh, – there are two great chase scenes in this film, and that that's the second one. I, that was a very frenetic, action-packed scene. I liked every minute of that. And I like it, too. You know, the one guy grabs a straight-edge razor, and Jason grabs a towel. And they're, <laughs> they're fighting with it, but then I remember just seeing it, and I'm like, oh, he's going to end up strangling with it. And it's like – I remember seeing Casino Royale before seeing this movie, and I remember like the one thing in, Jason, in the uh, Casino Royale was that one guy saying, oh, did he make you feel it? When he killed that yeah. one guy, when he strangled it, you could see what it was like that the guy was taking the other guy's life away with his bare hands. And it came back in this movie, too, where it's like he strangles this guy, and it's just not a quick little thing where he breaks his neck. He wraps the towel around his neck, and you just see him just holding it there and holding it there and holding it there and holding it there. And it was just like – it was a really tense and just almost really powerful scene that how he just – he's killing this guy, and it's – it's not a clean kill. I mean, it's brutal, and you feel it. I mean, you feel like you're Jason Bourne in that scene because you, you're literally ripping the life out of that guy, and it doesn't. It's not glamorous, you know. It's not something that's you know in a lot of other spy movies where it's like shoot him in the head and he's dead, or break well, his neck and he's dead, and you walk away. It's like no, yeah. you're really feeling it. It's not Commando where Schwarzenegger grabs his head, twists it, and he's done. You know, it's it's much more personal. It takes a long time to strangle somebody, and I mean that's a very intimate crime in a lot of ways a very intimate way to kill someone and it's i mean we've seen born do it before too but i'm with you this one to me seemed i they lingered on it a long time almost to the point of being too much but not quite there and a point to make you uncomfortable because it's really easy to get on born's side and be like yeah kill everybody which you that's not what you want you don't want him to be the terminator and he doesn't want that either you know, he doesn't go out there and try to shoot people. He's trying to avoid them, and he get when they get in his way, he takes them out. And that's that's the difference in him and, like you say, lesser films action stars, I think. You know, John, John McClane in the Die Hard sequels just shot everybody, right? I mean, Die Hard 2 is notorious for this. He's basically shooting like everybody. I mean, he's, I think he shot like 100 people in that movie. Well, he and would get on those movies. He'd go yeah. and strangle them, and it'd be over in four seconds. Exactly, yeah, and that is, that's not how it works. Yeah, and then this one, it's like, in this one, it's like 40 seconds that he's strangling I know, them. and it's, I mean, it's dark. And I, that's why I say this film is dark, and I, I really like it. And I even like it, too, that he's fighting with them, and Nikki's trying to kind of help him out, but it's not even affecting the guy when she's, like, hitting him or slamming something into him. It's just, like, the bad guy, Dash, doesn't even really notice that she's there, really. I mean, he wants to kill yeah. her. That's his goal. He's going to kill her, too. But she's just there, and it's, like, you start realizing that how powerful these guys are. And then even after he gets done strangling them, it's, like, the audience, you take a toll from killing that, from Jason killing that guy. And you see that, you know, it's like, yeah, you want Jason to do it, but it's like, now you see why this guy doesn't like being who he is. He doesn't like being yeah. this killing machine, and you can completely understand it. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable for him. And in that process, they reveal a lot of the plot. Dash is set to kill them after Voshin sees that Nikki's trying to log in and help Bourne, and she's with Bourne. And so that you see his betrayal, basically. And he makes a call to the CIA director, played by Scott Glenn, Ezra uh daniel not ezra daniels what's the dude's name ezra kramer and you realize now that this conspiracy this black briar treadstone all this stuff goes all the way to the top 
to the CIA director. Yeah, it's a really interesting turn in it, too. I always, and when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that must be just, you know, that would have been Brian Cox's uh, character if they didn't kill him off in the second one. But I like it that it's like, there's just layers and layers and layers to this. And then you kind of start getting the little flashbacks of Jason basically being waterboarded. Or yep. he's getting, you know, he's they're drowning the guy and stuff, and they're breaking him and stuff, and you kind of see what he went through, and then you learn that, oh, he signed up for this. Yeah, he he uh, volunteered for it. I mean, they ask him multiple times, you sure, you sure? And then he finally gives them the yes, and then that's when they go at start working on him. You know, yeah, I mean, and it gives you the sense now that the monster that got built it started with all of these guys and this, and they introduce uh, Hirsch, Albert Finney in there too. And it's, it, it's all starting to flood back to you. And that's when we overlap with the end of the born supremacy. When they redo this scene where he calls Landy, has that conversation with her. And we realize that Voshin is listening in on her phone conversations. He's tapping her thinking born may reach out to her. And sure enough, he's right. Yeah, it's well, now. What did, did you understand that what she was saying when she was saying his birthday was actually an address? I, I I'm glad they revealed it as such. I thought it meant something else. I was like, "There's no way that is his real birthday. Maybe that's his name." But she just slipped him something because the way he answers her is like that's how you that that's that sort of non-direct answer these people have been giving each other back and forth. For three movies now, that's got to mean something. And I like how that worked out, that that basically is just a ruse to, to go to another lo- to go to a meeting location so they can catch up later. And the whole point is so she basically is clearing a way for him to be able to break into Voshin's office and steal the Blackbriar files. Yeah, I I like it. I like it how he's actually getting her involved because I've, he's learned over the last, you know, film that she is someone that he can trust and that he wants to basically get all these files out to the public so they know what's going on with Blackbriar and knowing what the government's doing and everything and, you know, getting them all busted so no one has to go through this like him again. And I th- I really liked it. I liked it that, you know, he's he's taking the fight to him, but he's not doing it in the way that they would do it. Yeah, and of course, Voshin falls right for it. They go on the, the great chase, and this is another great scene in the film. All these phone conversations in this film are amazing, that you can have this much intensity with a phone conversation. And he's on the phone with Voshin, and Voshin's like, well, why don't you you know, come in and we'll talk about it? He's like, well, I doubt you know, we'd be doing it face-to-face, because if we were we were having this conversation, he, he says, where are you? And Voshin's like, I'm in my office. He said, no, if you're in your office, we'd be having this conversation face-to-face. And he hangs his phone up, and I'm like, oh, you just got burnt. And I thought that was fantastic. Well, it's a nice callback to the other movies too, because he kept he he likes to do that, where it's like he's showing that he's you know five steps ahead of you. Exactly. Well, he's showing that he's got the drop on you, you know, and that's the whole point. And no matter what you do, you're in trouble. And you know, of course, that sends Voshin into just scramble mode, you know. And they're trying to to double back, and he's letting the the doctor know that Bourne's on his way and stuff. And then that's when he meets up with Landy and gives her all that information. And basically tells her bye, you know? Yeah, and I remember when I saw this too, I remember my wife was all like, you know, why would he tell him that he's that he's there? You know, why is he giving away his, you know, his, his location? I'm like, well, he's doing that purposely because, again, he's always a few steps ahead. And he's doing that to rustle this guy up because he's going to start making stupid decisions. Because exactly. he learns that, you know, like you said, he's got the drop on him. And when you get someone all wild up and everything, get them all excited, get in, you know, their adrenaline going, well, they're not in control anymore. 
And that's exactly what yeah. he was trying to do with them was get them to be shocked, get them to run back there and, you know, try to get them completely off his game so he could get over to Pamela and get the stuff. And that's that's really it. And that's when they reveal that the whole four fifteen seventy one thing is where to meet. It's a, a cr- intersection of, of different streets. And I like that, too. I thought that was a great, great idea that they they had a little code worked out for that. And, uh, you know, then we get into the last bit of the film. And this is this is the part that I'll be honest, I had to watch a couple of times to try to get is he confronts this doctor. He's being chased by all these agents. He confronts this doctor, and they start having this conversation. And the doctor slowly but surely draws the memory out of him of how he joined the program and all of that. And really, the the tipping point was they tell him, you've got to shoot this person who's wearing a a head mask over here in the corner. And he keeps asking, what did he do? What did he do? And they keep saying, doesn't matter. And he finally just leans up with the gun and just blasts the guy. And that's when they, I mean, we don't ever know who that guy was. Maybe that was the real Jason Bourne. You know, I don't know. How did you take all that? Um, I just took it as, you know, just showing exactly what these organizations are, how it's just like they want you to basically be like the Terminator and stuff, and they're taking away your humanity. And they're just showing, like, you know, every little thing that they're doing as far as, you know, killing a guy without give, telling you why you're killing him or who he is, just kill him. They're trying to get him to get rid of his humanity and everything. And then I think it's even bigger reveal when he, you know, the guy tells him like you signed up for this and it's almost like a total recall type, you know, um, reveal where it's like, you're the guy that you hate, you know, yeah. you, you're, 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 you're the bad guy, you know, you're just, you're just as bad if not worse than these guys. You know, you didn't exactly. get you, you didn't get taken away. You weren't, you know, brainwashed. You know, you weren't, you know, some top guy recruit or something in boot camp, and they, you know, took you away one late at night or something like that. It's like now you you had it good, and you basically wanted to become this. And I think it's a real interesting reveal, and you know, something I think they honestly could have, you know, if they did a fourth one with Jason Bourne, something could have expanded on. And and one wonders if they'll reference any of this in the fourth one. I haven't read much of the advance on on Born Legacy uh, to see what what it's about. But the, yeah, I liked it too, man. I liked that it it ended on this dark note, and I like that Born doesn't shoot the guy. He doesn't kill it. He basically is just trying to get away now after he knows that Paz is coming after him still, and they've had a big fight and car chase already. And what do you make of the end on the rooftop? I loved how he he called back to those words from the professor, you know, trying to convince the guy, why are you going to shoot me? Do you even know why you're going to kill me? You know, is this really worth it? I like how he's able to appeal to the humanity in that assassin. Well, I I always kind of took it as, you know, we kind of glanced over, but the car chase where Jason could have killed that guy. Yeah. And he he decided not to. Because I think, you know, whatever reason you didn't want to, because the guy was just, you know, following orders and stuff. He was basically what Jason Bourne was back in the day. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think in a way it was kind of like a mutual respect type thing that he kind of tells Paz that, that he's, you know, look what we've become, you know. And I think he realizes that's the reason why Jason never shot him when he could have. I mean, Jason could have killed him and he didn't do it. And I think that kind of brought, you know, revelation to him that that's the reason why he didn't kill kill you and he's giving you a little bit of information where it's, you know, you're going to, you're going to keep on going down this path and you're not going to be anything left until they decide to kill you. I think that's in those shorter words. I think that's kind of what that guy kind of picked up on it and just basically like, you know, put his gun down, like, you know, just get out of here. 
Exactly. But, of course, you know, as as always has to happen, there's always a backup. Voshin appears and shoots at Bourne, presumably shooting him in the back as he jumps off the building ten floors down into the East River. Now, did you, you think uh, Paz is going to shoot him, shoot Noah? Yeah, I really he thought he Bourne? would. I really thought he would, and and I don't I don't know. I was curious as to what would happen to Paz after that, you know, because you would figure he would be dead, right? Because that's what happens to these assassins when they're no longer useful to Treadstone or to Blackbriar. They they get retired. So I I don't know. I thought he would shoot Noah, but uh, well, that's not Noah how it goes. Go, well, with Noah going to jail, I mean, because well, Landy got those files, and it's basically all but certain that he's going to prison, that, you know, Paz would be okay. I don't think that they would kill him. Well, if uh, let's say that again. If Noah had stayed in power, he probably would have been killed. But the fact that he's going to prison, Noah's probably, oh, I mean, Paz is probably hanging out in Eastern Europe somewhere doing nothing, you know, the, retiring, you know, and, and being put away. And that's that's what you can hope. De- and I like they, that they, they decommissioned him and gave him some job overseas somewhere. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're going to do. R- running a motorcycle repair shop or something. I mean, who knows? So, but the whole point is that we get Landy in front of that Senate oversight committee again, talking about Blackbriar, exposing everything. It's all over the news. Everything that this started out best. Because the whole point of this, this, this film started with a reporter trying to get this information on the news to expose this corruption. And it's been exposed, and Nikki Parsons is watching it on the news, and you know it's gone all the way up to the the doctor in Voshin, and there's a investigation into the CIA director, you know, and they even know now that you know David Webb is the guy's name that was a, a part of all of this, and he was reportedly shot, but they never found his body, and I love that grin on her face. She's like. I know what that means. And then sure enough, we flash back to the underwater of the guy floating and start swimming away. And then that's, that's the cue of the end. And I, I loved it, man. I thought it was, it was a great way to end the thing. Yeah. I think it was a perfect way. It brings the movie full circle, brings it right back to identity. And he learned what he wanted to learn. You know, he's he doesn't know really who he is, you know, besides his name. Now, I mean, with that information, he can probably go back and piece together what his life was before he joined. But I don't think he would. I think it's just like, you know, he got the guys who got Marie. He took down the organization, and now he's just going to go, you know, live out the rest of his life, you know, probably running a bicycle shop. (laughs) He's definitely moving on. He's got the answer, the only answer he could really have at this point. And I think that's where they end the whole bit. So I think think the point of the only answer he probably wants, too, you know, I don't think he really wants to know anything more. I think it's that's it. It's time to move on. Yeah, you're right. Well, we're at the point of the podcast where we need to move on to and give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for the film. So what are yours for The Bourne Ultimatum? Uh, for me, I, you know, you always hear the, you know, people complaining about trilogies that very rarely do they ever pull off a trilogy. You know, Alien 3 was a disappointment. Return of the Jedi was a disappointment. Godfather 3 was a disappointment. That uh, Spider-Man 3, X-Men 3, that anytime they get to the third one, it just is turns out to be the worst one of the series. J- Jaws 3. Jaws 3. Oh. <laughs> Every Jaws that has a numeral. For the Bourne Ultimatum, I think this is the best one in the series, um, hands down. I mean, Bourne Identity is a very good movie. The Bourne Supremacy is a very good movie. But this one is just something else. It's one that you need to see after you see the first two. You can't see this alone because it really depends so much on the other two but it's just everything those other two movies did just better and for me it's an extra large popcorn i think this is 
one of the best movies that we've done on this on continuous play. Well, I want to say this. This is my favorite one of the series, too, and I'll agree with you. It's the best one of, of all three of them. And it, even though you have to have the advanced knowledge of the other ones, I think if you've seen the other films, you can just watch this one for what it is. And I'll tell you now, I own these films now, and this is the one I'm probably going to watch the most. This was a blast of a film. It's one of the best action-adventure films I have ever seen. And I can't believe I skipped it all these years. <laughs> but it is by far in my top five, probably my top three. Just a fantastic film. Well-paced, well-acted, well-directed. Everything in it works. I, there's nothing I can complain about in it. I mean, I and that's hard to do, especially the way we nitpick through things here on Filmstrip. I can't find any real complaints. I love this. Both times I watched it for this this review and I will watch it many times again. I'm going to join in that pile of extra large popcorn. This is a fantastic way to end what could have been a trilogy. But it's not a trilogy, Nick. We have the fourth installment, which they, the producers will tell you is not a reboot. It's a continuation in the same universe, but is a larger canvas. They're going with different actor Jeremy Renner's in this, and it's a different character. And the have way we heard this said, before with the well, larger canvas, and it's it's kind DNA of DNA. Of well, I hope I hope that this turns out better than the last time we heard this, because uh, we certainly had our moments with that particular film. Folks can go back to the Alien retrospective and listen to the last one to hear that. But well, if I can yeah. go over quick with the uh, the cast, I mean, you we got newcomers and Jeremy Renner who. Man, this guy's in every freaking movie now, man. He's, I mean, it's a big summer for him. <laughs> man, he loves his freaking action movies, and he's good in them. I mean, he's a good actor. We also got Rachel Weisz um, being in here as uh, some doctor, Dr. Schneider. Don't know exactly what her role is. And then we also have Edward Norton. Yeah. Oh, well, and, now, that, that raises the stakes, too, because I dig Norton a lot and particularly when he gets to play these sort of sinister roles mm -hmm. and i this is going to be good and straight Heron's in this too so i now i know we're rolling the clock back somehow on yep. some of this well so joan I, allen joan allen's in yeah. it um he's in it um albert finney's in it and uh scott scott glenn's in it again too yeah so i mean they they've got an all-star cast i'm I'm excited to see where they go with it. I know very little, only what I've seen in the two trailers I've watched about it and just the basic cast list, you know, on this one. I'm going in hopeful that this is going to be at least as good as I would say like the second one. You know, if I had to rank these, I would put that one probably as the weakest of the three, though it's there's I mean, it's not really weak, but come in comparison, that's where I'd put it. And I can only hope that Born Legacy is at least that good. Yeah, same here. I mean, I don't know what I'm expecting from it. I mean, the trailers look good. They kind of look like they're adding a little bit of an element where he's almost like a super soldier type thing. And, you know, yeah. it's for these movies that have been really, really, I mean, minus the one scene in Identity, these movies have been extremely grounded. I mean, extremely grounded. So we'll have to see where it goes. I mean, these are just trailers. So, you know, trailers lie. I mean, Prometheus looked good. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm always yeah. going to get my jab in on Prometheus. So. <laughs> As well, you should. We only waited for that for how many years? <laughs> and yeah. Then we both sat through that disappointment. So. 20 years of my life. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. Well, how many hours of the podcast, too? I mean, sheesh, it's our second longest series here at Filmstrip. And, like... and the home of the longest podcast we've ever had with uh, the Aliens podcast. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I, you know, this really all started because of a discussion about the trailer, though. It was on that Trailer Mania sessions with you and Anna. We were talking, and you threw this one out there and said, hey, this one might be a sleeper in the summer. I think it'll be good. And I had said, well, I've never seen the Bourne films. This will be a neat way to sort of introduce myself to them. So now I'm excited to see where they take this thing. And if they can do something half as smart and interesting, it'll be neat. Now, the director this time is the guy that's been writing all of them, Tony Gilroy, who's also directed some things. He's taken over the reins, so it's in the same creative hands, you feel like. So that gives me hope that it's going to be good. Yeah, I have some really high hopes for it. So, And I mean... Gilroy's no slouch. I mean, he's a very good writer. He directed, like, um, Michael Clayton, which is a very good movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he wrote the Bourne movies. He he also kind of wrote Armageddon, but we'll forgive him on that. But <laughs> A lot of people wrote that. So let's change the linear yeah. no head part of that. Let's And, and he, he gave us that Jim Alien versus Predator Requiem. So, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, everybody's got one that they do just for the cash, man. So, <laughs> and he also, I did. I, he also did Duplicity. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I have not, but I hear it's good. I haven't seen that, but I've heard it was quite good. So, so I got, I'm, I got, I got hopes for it. So we'll, we'll see how it turns out. We will, and uh, folks, th- we hope you join us on that one. We will release the Born Legacy shortly after its theatrical release in 2012. We are getting our release dates all worked out here in a little bit, but uh, we'll we'll have the Born series wrapped up, and then. Well, some fun things in store for the fall. We'll tease you a little bit and tell you more about it as we get down the line and closer to it. But we really appreciate your support and listening to our podcast. You can find more episodes in the archive section of our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can also find a link to our sister podcast, The Art of Slaying, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective, where we review every episode of The Buffy Show there as well. And go to Art of Slaying, theartofslaying.com to find those episodes. Hey, if you like the show, drop us a line on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. Leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. If you agree, disagree with us. Either way, we like hearing from the fans, and we do this because we enjoy movies hopefully as much as you So, until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All material discussed in this podcast is property of the respective owners, and any discussion of these materials is for entertainment purposes only. Filmstrip is a movie review podcast produced by Continuous Play Podcast, copyright 2012.